Used to me preaching good. <laughs> but we have Gail here. Gail is a, a good friend. Uh, there aren't a lot of guys in ministry that I esteem, but Gail happens to be one of them. Uh, because he opened my eyes to the way Jesus really is. And I'm forever grateful for that. And I was raised in church. You would think I would have known what Jesus was like. But the way he presents Jesus is a blessing. So you're in for a great treat. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce Gail, who I said, Gail, if you're ever in our area, come on by. And he give us a call, and he's here this morning. So, Gail, you may be seated, by the way, unless you want him to stand. Well, in olden days, you know, the... Teachers sat and the congregation stood, but that's—I won't do that to you. Uh, before I get into my message, which is going to be from Genesis beginnings, you might say, uh, let me tell you a couple of things I want you to pray about. For decades, I have had a dream of putting a copy of the Jesus Style in every church in the United States. Well, it was kind of a crazy dream, and I doubted, uh, I guess, no, I never really doubted that it would ever happen. And God has begun to fulfill that, for which I am deeply grateful. And within the last, oh, six weeks, a copy of that book has gone out to every church in Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And we've already had some incredible feedback from that. And I'm sure there will be more. Well, within the next month, all of the churches in New England and Washington State, who, which happen to be our most unchurched areas, will receive copies. So I would like for you to pray that God will use it the way that he has used it in other churches. I've had countless, you might say, testimonials about what it has done. Uh, I spoke in a Mennonite church, a big one up in southern, southwestern Canada, that had been tearing itself apart until the brother of the pastor, who had fallen in love with the book and had become a bit of a groupie everywhere I was in the northwest, he and his wife would show up. And he said to his brother, you need to take this book and have all of your leadership and as many of the people as can read it. And they did, and it healed the church. And there was a wealthy man in that church that then said to my friend, I will pay for every copy of this you want to give away. So he gave away hundreds of copies up there. And any of you willing to do that, it's okay. <laughs> and then I, uh, John Corson, I, you know, I wish you could get him to come and preach. You'd never want anybody else after that, but. Uh, John Corson's uh, lost his wife to an automobile accident and then in an identical icy day accident lost his oldest daughter who was quite a phenomenon. I, every time I would preach there, she would come up afterward and point out things that I had missed in that scripture, you know. Thank you. <laughs> but it was good. I was learning from her and I appreciated that. But I was there at her funeral or at a memorial service and I sat down, and this 
well-dressed man came up and sat beside me, and he asked me, are you Gail Irwin, the author of the Jesus Style? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I pastor the Nazarene Church over in the next town. And he said, uh, there was a point where I knew I'd read your book, and I knew that I needed to get it in the hands of my congregation. And he said, you would not believe the difference between us from before and now. He said, we're a totally revolutionized, now alive church. So knowing those kinds of things that happen regularly, I've had countless people tell me that kind of thing. And the book's in 36 languages. It's all over Southeast Asia uh, and is required reading in Gospel for Asia people. So... I just believe the Lord must have an anointing on it that I want to get it in the hands of every church in the U.S. The other thing I want you to pray about. You know, I've, I have on MP3 over there a collection of all of my published messages except for some that are on DVD. And they have been on radio in many places over and over and over and they're begging me, please give us some new ones. Well, the thing is, I have a bunch of new ones that I want to give them. But finding a situation where you can actually get professional uh, quality uh, DVDs and, and audio is really not as easy to find as you might think, and especially with a congregation that would be responsive. So the Lord has opened a mighty door for me in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where Western Kentucky University, which is a very large and major university, happens to have a state-of-the-art media department with portable equipment that often the networks will call on them to cover some news with their equipment. They've made it available to me with, uh, not, not free, you know, but it's available. <laughs> uh, with, with professionals to run the cameras and the production and so forth. And on Tuesday night of next week, we begin three weeks of production, and hopefully I can get 30 new messages on board that will be suitable for both radio and for distribution and will help complete. It won't complete, but it will help complete the kinds of things that I want to do. So please pray for that. Uh, I'm on a radio station up there and have been for decades. And they put out the word. Uh, actually, they did an interview of me early last week. And uh, it was before we made the full announcement. But we wanted 75 people each night because of the limitations of where I'm going to do it. And before we even announced officially, there were already 30 people that had signed up. They said, whenever it is, I'm coming. You know, kind of. So pray for all of that. It's going to be held at a church called Living Hope Baptist Church in a, a chapel. They call it their chapel. It used to be a Catholic church, which they bought. It was adjacent to them and turned it in. It was the perfect place for us to do this. So I'm excited about it. It begins Tuesday night. Please pray for us. Now, it, uh, 30 minutes ago, this is so exciting to me, a grandson of mine was baptized in Mobile, Alabama. He gave his heart to the Lord last week and, and uh, decided he wanted to be baptized this Sunday. And he's been a kid for whom we have prayed for much of his life. He's been under state care. And now he's decided to follow the Lord. I, I can't 
I hope I can finish the sermon without thinking about him and, and getting lost in it. But I take you to Genesis. We'll start in chapter 2. You know how God put the world together. I had an interesting encounter once when I was flying to uh, Amsterdam. And somehow or other, a guy who was a professor at the University of Southern California and I got into a conversation. Now, he wanted to know at one point, and usually people do, just what do you do, mister? And I'd tell him, well, I have more fun than anybody in the world. I go all over the world teaching on the nature of Jesus. Now, you mention that name, and you're going to get some kind of, of response from them. They don't just go... And stare at you. His response was, well, I'm an atheist. Now, one thing I've learned about atheists is they do not have a, an apologetic. I mean, they, 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 they never have to defend themselves. You say on a usual university campus, I'm an atheist. Oh, yeah, well, we understand, you know. You never have to support it. And so I knew that. <laughs> and so I said, Really? Yeah. I said, well, please help me. How did you, a professor at the University of Southern California, come to the conclusion that there was no God? How did you do that? Well, he had never had to defend it before. <laughs> well, um, well, uh, yeah. and then I interrupted and I said, I, I, I look at, at the universe, what I know of it, and it's incredible. We don't even know how big it was. And even the Big Bang Theory doesn't hold up because it's supposed to be slowing down by a gravitational pull, but it's speeding up out on the edge of it. How do you do that? And, you know, somebody recently, maybe you guys have followed this somewhat, has discovered, he thought, the evidence out way out yonder because of some kind of waves or what have you of the Big Bang. And now someone else has come along who's just as smart and says, it was just space dust. That wasn't what he thought it was. So I guess God's back in charge again. <laughs> but then this guy, and I said, and then you turn the other way around. And I said, the, 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 it's orderly out there. And you turn it up around and we go as much inside as we can. And it's incredible. We can't even figure all of that out. There had to be a designer. He said, well, um, okay, I'm an agnostic. <laughs> I said, I wasn't going to let him go with that. I said, well, tell me how you, a professor at the University of Southern California, could come to the conclusion that you could not know whether there was a God or not. How would you do that? And and he was, you know, I had him, and he knew it, and I knew it. And finally he said, well, uh, look, I believe in life. I said, well, I do too. But I knew what he meant. I said, you got a tree at your house? Yeah. What if I were to come and rip a bunch of leaves off of it? What would you do? Well, I'd be upset. Why? Because it's life, right? Right. Got any children? Yeah. What if I come kill a couple of them? How would you feel? Now, wait a minute. I said, but it's just life. All right, mister. And I'll never forget this. By this point, by the way, with our conversation, the stewardess had moved us twice. <laughs> People were complaining, you know. And finally, if you've been on a 747, between the rows of uh, toilets, 
we were finally located. And there may have been complaints that we heard coming from those, but who could tell? <laughs> and finally there he said to me, okay, mister, I'm a seeker. He said, I would love to have what you've got, but I don't know how. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. And I shared the good news with him. And he agreed to accept a copy of the Jesus style. I have not heard from him since, but I'm trusting that the Lord got through to him. But the fact of the matter is, I believe God created this place. It's just too complicated. Uh, there is no way that my wife could have evolved. She is too complicated. God had to put that lady together. Now, don't shake your hand, Gloria. Your head. Uh, and so I think for us, that's probably a given. I don't have to convince you of that. But in the course of God's developing it, a certain first came about. And one of the things that impresses me about this is that God created life. Now, that's a real problem for scientists, you know. They can copy certain things, but they cannot create life. It's a real struggle. One of my favorite little joke stories is where scientists said to God, Hey, <laughs> we can do it now ourselves. We don't need you. We can put man together. We know how. And God says, Okay, let's do it. And you, you do it your way and I'll do it mine. And the scientists reached down to get some dirt and God said, Whoa, go get your own dirt. <laughs> so God then takes in, 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 in chapter 2 verse 7 you, I love this and you ladies will understand this especially it says and the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground you knew that didn't you ladies just took a handful of mud and made a man out of it and I've noticed and my wife can tell you that wherever I am there seems to be a collection of dust that, that follows me. It's, <laughs> there's just something about her neatness, and she's here, and I'm, she knows that I've said this before, and she still lives with me, but she is so neat. She really does not need a, a, a dinner napkin, you know? And when we're eating at some place, and I'll pick up napkins, I'll tear off a little corner and hand to her. I need a sheet, you know? And you can tell where I've been, because there's, there's evidence all over the place. And so I realized I'm made out of mud. <laughs> I'm built close to the ground, you might say. Then the Lord created, he formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, one of the things I notice is that the, the Old Testament especially seems to equate life with breath, you know which we have lost sight of in our day. But God didn't say, you know, I'm tired of all these living uh, vegetables and the like that I've made. I think I'll kill something now. You know, No, no, no. Nor did he just create an image of Adam and set it out there and say, I hope that you can make it alive. We'll call you Pinocchio, you know, who... And the story eventually gets turned into a little boy and was began as a puppet. No, he formed him himself 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, God creates life. This is the most incredible thing here to me. Imagine for a moment. I love to get in the Bible and become characters, and I sort of think, what would I do if I were Adam, and I'm alive, and I can see things, and this is incredible. Everything is beautiful. I'm hungry. I can grab something, anything, because it's all edible and eat it, you know. This is great. And God even said to me, hey, you want to live forever? Oh, yeah. All you have to do is go eat of the tree of life. Oh, by the way, Adam, there is another tree there. Uh, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, 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 don't eat that one because the day you do, you'll die. Well, <laughs> die? I don't know what that means. Now, let me give you a little uh, crazy Irwin belief here. Yeah, I'll just get, start with a story. I happen to have gone to college with the first person ever to be diagnosed with autism. Now, in this term of autism, you will discover that, that there's so much they don't understand, but the incredible power of the brain often comes out. They used to call it uh, an idiot savant, but they realized idiot was not the right word. And now they just call it a savant. You may, this guy in college was an absolute zero socially. You were just as important to him as was a chair or a table, and that was it. But he could instantly multiply any two numbers together. He numbered everybody. I have a number. I don't know what my number is, but he numbered me, and he will not forget it. He's still living. I wonder if Adam and Eve, I don't think God formed them and said, okay, no schools or anything, but <laughs> good luck. Hope you can figure it out. I believe that he endowed them with all of the knowledge that they needed for their time. They were not lacking anything. They were savants in all areas except one. And that was the knowledge of good and evil. Well, there's something about us human beings, you know, when someone tells us don't. Don't what? I have a dear friend who... Uh, told me this story when he and his wife were going out for a very needed time out together they had engaged a babysitter for their four-year-old daughter and he said now I'm an intelligent man I knew better than to do this but I did it he says I as I walked out the door I turned to my daughter and said don't put any beans up your nose while we're gone now she would never have thought of it but now she's thinking why Wait, can you finish the story? When they got back, they had to rush to the emergency room to get beans out of her nose. Just something about us, that the word don't, you know. I have to confess to you that I consider the speed limit signs to kind of be recommendations, you know. Uh, it's sort of like don't. And I say, well, I don't know about that. You know, I'm an American. You don't tell me don't. And so God said, don't eat of that tree because that's, well, when you eat of it, you'll die. Ah, oh, but it had knowledge they didn't have. Isn't that amazing? Oh, but before that all happened, years ago, uh, there was a musical that came out called God's Trombones. 
Now, it was a creation musical, and there was a God figure in it who at the end of every day of creation would come out and say, that's good, you know. And the next day, he, when they finished, come out, that's good. But then, as the scripture indicates, there was one day when this God figure has to come out and say, that's not good. And it was right after he made man. <laughs> See, all of your suspicions, ladies, I'm fulfilling here, you know. Yeah, that's not good. And what was it? He said, this is not good, and this is also in the second chapter, it is not good that man should live alone. Well, I understand that now. Uh, I think if, if uh, we men had lived alone, uh, all, we, we needed help, you know. If we lived alone, we would never have changed our fig leaf. We'd just turn it every 30 days, you know. <laughs> we just need help. And God knew he needs a helper. And so the most interesting thing happens, first of all, though, he's got to find out whether or not what he has created will already be that helper. Listen, I love this. Out of the Well, let's go, jump down to uh, the Lord God said in verse 18 of chapter 2, it is not good that man should be alone. I will, now, now follow this closely, folks. I will make him a helper comparable to him. In other words, just like him in a way. Now, what's the next word? Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. You knew that, didn't you, later? God says, I'll make someone just like him. Then he made beasts. Well, I have... Uh, son-in-law my oldest son-in-law who sometimes uh, just he's a little bit too much out there you know he's brilliant and I love being around him but uh, he sent me an email once he said Yale Microsoft has developed a program that with the screen they can take your picture I thought Microsoft can do anything and he said now just download you know click on this that I've sent you and download it and it will then you be real still in front of the screen and hit the space bar for just two seconds and it'll take your picture and print it right in front of you any of any of you guys did you fall for that i'll never forget you know i'm thinking this is exciting and sure enough here it comes line by line a picture of a gorilla he got me again, you know. Well, God marches all of these beasts in front of, animal, of Adam to see what he would call them. This is right after he says, I'll make a helper comparable to him. And so he creates these beasts. And he's watching Adam as he, as he names them, you know. And I can hear Adam saying, Should, you want me to do this alphabetically or what? Yeah, well, go ahead. That's all right. So aardvark, you know, and buffalo and, and cat and dog. And finally he gets down to zebra. Can I go now? And God's watching him to see what he would call them. Why is he doing that? I believe because God was waiting to see if he called any of them honey. Surely when he gets to the chimpanzee, you know, 
or the gorilla, he'll say, ooh, honey. But he didn't call any of them that. And then it says, so no comparable helper was found for Adam. But God was checking with the beasts to see if Adam liked any of them. And then an interesting thing happens here. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. Now, I think this was the last good night's sleep he had. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. Now, the Lord just sort of drove the animals in front of Adam to see what he would call them. But now he brings Eve. I can see God somehow here, hold my arm, and he's marching Eve down the aisle. Mm. We still do that in a way. But it's yet seldom the first time we've seen our bride. And Adam, I can see this, when he saw her, he gets excited. <laughs> this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> That's probably there. It just didn't get written down. <laughs> she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Oh, this is more like me. This is great. You know, we still get that excited, don't we, guys? Uh, in fact, we have to to win the ladies now. I mean, God brought... Eve, but we have to find our Eve and convince her that you're my Eve and so forth. But this was that first encounter between someone who was just like him, a suitable helper. Wow. Therefore, and here is something, a first that becomes a continuation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that is is quoted again in the New Testament. But here's a first. You see, this is the incredible significance of this event. It isn't just a meeting of two people. It's a becoming of one flesh. And it's so powerful that you're willing to leave your family to form a new one now or to be with this person. And, and boy, that's been true with my wife and myself because... Both of our mothers especially were informing us because I had already been called to preach. when I, Well, when I first met her, I was going to be a brain surgeon. <clears throat> be thankful. But when we actually got married, I was going to be a poor preacher. And I told her, you could have sued me for, you know, something to change. You thought you were going to be rich. But you wouldn't get anything, but you could still sue me, you know. Now... This is, this is a, a, a first thing that, that is important to us. We're in the middle of an argument in our country and around the world over whether there is some other method of marriage and so forth. I happen to be right in the middle of a major, in fact, they kind of ruled our city for a while, of people who are, we sometimes call of an alternate persuasion relative to marriage. And, uh, you know, they're people just like anybody else. I treat them good. And they know that. And they, uh, they respect me, and I respect them as persons. We just have different ideas about 
what this is and what God actually created. And, of course, they've built a theology where they believe God created this in them. And uh, we build theologies out of anything we want to, don't we? But not often out of the Bible, unfortunately. Well, God had said, there's one tree I don't want you to eat out. Why didn't Adam run immediately to the tree of life? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't he say, man, this life is so great. I have got to make sure it continues. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Have you ever dreamed about when you get to heaven, finding Adam and just beating the snot out of him? One, <laughs> I see you have. One of the things that, that uh, I've observed is that everything that is alive wants to stay alive. You know? Uh, I'm a ward of the United States government now, and I am required to go and see my doctor at least once a year, uh, which I don't manage to do. Uh, he gets mad at me, you know. He says, it's been over a year since you've been here. Why haven't you been here? And I say, I haven't needed you. I feel great. I'm doing good. I'm healthy. You are not. Anybody that old is not healthy. Well, what can I say? You want to make me like you? I just hope you don't die while I'm here visiting you. <laughs> I don't say that to him, but I'm thinking it. <laughs> You know? But everything that is alive wants to stay alive. You know that. Even a tiny bacterium, where is its brain? It doesn't have a brain, but try to kill it. Whoo, you miss. Ha, oh, you miss. Cockroaches. Now, I know you don't have them here. But, <laughs> but uh, probably, according to the evolutionists, they're older than anything else on the earth. How do they manage? Well, we don't have enough feet. That's the problem. But uh, you maybe you've had an, an influx of them and you turn on the lights after you've been away for a good while and there they are. Do they look at you and say, ha ha, you got me? No, they skitter away as fast as they can. Why? They know you're about to burst into song. La cucaracha, la cucaracha. You know. Where's the brain in those things? How do they know to stay alive unless there's something about this thing called life? which God invented and gave us and gave us the possibility even from the beginning of living forever. Awesome. Now, after what happened, and you know what happened, I'll talk a little bit about it, uh, the thought, you know, they had God had to take the tree of life out of the Garden of Eden for fear that they might eat of it right quickly and live forever in this new state a state of death you see Adam and Eve chose death God didn't invent that he didn't offer it to him he said don't do that ah boy now I'm well 39 plus not minus but I've come I now have lived longer than any of my Irwin uh, relatives that I've known who were men and so I'm thinking, God, you just have granted me something you didn't grant to the other guys, but I still know my days are numbered. But you know, we always want to stay alive. Recently, 
in our country, we had two men I know of who, according to the news reports, led miserable lives, but they also happened to have a lot of money more than they knew what to do with. So they, when they died, they had themselves frozen in hopes that somewhere down the road somebody would figure out how to bring them back to life because life, miserable as it was, was still the way to go. Now, I find humor in this in more than one way. They sent themselves to Arizona to be frozen. I, I don't understand that, you know. So God creates Eve. Adam's excited about that. I understand I remember when I first met my wife, I wanted to jump up and down and shout and make a fool out of myself. I've managed to do that a lot since. But I was just so glad to meet my Eve, you know. I felt that God had made her specifically for me. By the way, you know, that's her over there, the cute white-haired chick over there by the wall. <laughs> and we took a tour uh, a couple of years ago to celebrate our our... 55th, I lose track, honey, anniversary. It's We got our 57th coming up. And it's Ireland because there's, you know, I'm Scott and, and we're both a lot of Irish background just to sort of visit our ancestral places, so to speak. But it was a commercial bus tour. And at the end of the tour, a couple of the ladies came to my wife and said, we've been watching you and we think that if Marilyn Monroe had lived this long, she would look like you. Now, don't stare at her now, but later on, you can do that, you know. That Marilyn Monroe statue was in Palm Springs near where I live for two years, and I wanted to take her picture next to it, but they've taken it away now, and it's probably best. At any rate, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Now they have both partaken of the tree. Now you need to know there are certain things about that tree. In the next chapter, it's described as especially good-looking and luscious. In fact, I had one lady tell me whatever the forbidden fruit was, it was chocolate-covered. I believe that. There's something about that tree that that merited a good description that fruit was beautiful it was i think it was their favorite tree you know why not the tree of life why didn't god describe it as just luscious and beautiful you know what i think it was ugly <laughs> no it looked like a hurricane or a tornado had just gone through and hit it hit it i think and it's kind of barren and looked like maybe uh something had died on it maybe why eat of that tree Ah, oh, but the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Man, I think it was their favorite tree. Now, it's important to know, you know, Eve was not there by herself. Adam was there also. It's revealed later. He watched what was going on. He could have stopped it had he wanted to. But when the serpent begins to talk to Eve, you know, Eve responds with the beginning of legalism. He said not to eat it. He said not even to touch it. God didn't say that. But it was the beginning of legalism. We've got life begun. We've got marriage begun here. We've got temptation begun. We've got legalism begun. And 
the fact that this was the one area of knowledge they didn't have. The devil says, you know why he doesn't want you to have that. You'd be complete then. I mean, he knows that in the day you eat of that, you're going to be as smart as God. Now, there are religious movements that will try to convince you that you're God if you do this. Uh, you probably are aware there's one headquartered in Salt Lake City, and that's their basic premise, that you are God if you're a man. If you're a woman, you better be attached to a man or you don't make it. It's amazing, isn't it, how they treat women in religions that don't follow Jesus. I mean, if you look at what happens with the Hindus, it is horrible how they view and treat women. And anybody like the Beatles who want to, you know, go Hare Krishna stuff, don't realize, is it out of their stupidity or what, what they just bought into, the whole caste system and the way they view women. It's terrible. They suffer. Or if you are a Muslim, I don't know of anybody lower on the face of this earth than a Muslim woman. They just simply absolutely devalue them and mistreat them. But in Christ, man, your person, you're just as valuable to him as anyone else. Now, we men, with the vestiges of what we've thought, and we still have a tendency to want to be uh, more important, you know, but not in God's eyes. And we, I think, when we understand, realize that though they're a helper, they're equal. Wow. I see that in uh, Ephesians 5 where it tells us, and your Bible is broken there right after that, and said, and it should have been broken before. It says to submit one to another. And then it tells you how women do it and how men do it. And when I look at what I'm supposed to do, I want to trade places. Because I'm supposed to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And that means I am to be the absolute servant. You know, all she has to do is submit to me. Oh, man, we got a problem here. But at any rate, there they are, both of them under this very attractive tree, and Satan convinces them, God's pulling a trick on you. I mean, I can hear the conversation. Why would he tell you not to do that if he loved you? Why would he make the most beautiful tree in this garden look like that and tell you that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll die? Come on. Don't you understand how this couldn't be? God wouldn't do that, would he? But I think he says not to eat it because he knows that when you do, you'll be as smart as him. You'll be a God too. Wow. And anytime the devil says, why does God say, <laughs> don't enter that conversation? Because we don't know all the whys. We just know what he did say. Now, one thing I want you to notice, you know, some people get upset that we, uh, we have, you know, the Bible. Why, why should we believe the Bible? In fact, one guy on an airplane with a friend of mine, he said, who was going to seminary, he said, I don't understand why you have to go three or four years to a seminary. You've only got one book. You know. And, and that's basically true. But why 
should we believe this? When you can be like God anyway. And there are those who worship their mind. I, I, I will tell you, because I'm going to say something in a minute that I think proves it, that uh, I do not agree with Calvinism. And there's a reason why. Basic five-point Calvinism believes that you do not really have a choice about whether you get saved or not because you do not have a will until God gives you a will only to get saved, then takes your will away from you so you cannot then be unsaved. I don't believe that. I believe that the image of God in us, and I see all the evidence I need for this, is not that we have two hands, two arms, two legs, torso, and a head. I don't think that's what God looks like. Nobody has seen him. And Jesus was made in our likeness, which is interesting. So what, what is, in my in, information, the image of God in us? It's our ability to make choices, our judgment. And God respects that in us. And so when we make a choice, he respects it, even if it's not a good choice. When he says, choose you this day, it is a choice that we make. And coming to follow Jesus is a choice that we make. It's a choice that I want to live. Hmm. One of the, the best evidences of this, I think, happens twice in the New Testament. Once with the apostles and once with a guy that could have been. But at one point around uh, John chapter 8, you know, Jesus had begun to teach some things that caused a few of the people around to decide not to follow him anymore. And apparently it was beginning to cause discomfort with the apostles and so what does Jesus say to them? I know what I would have said. I said, you think you're going to leave me? Look, you take five steps in the wrong direction and you are a vapor. See, that's the way I'd do it. But Jesus didn't do that. Guess what he said to his especially chosen ones? Will you leave me also? They were free to exercise the image of God in them, their choice. One of my favorite ones, because I like to get in the Scripture and think, what would I do if I were this guy or if I were Jesus here or one of the apostles or what have you? Very famous story about a guy that comes to Jesus, and, and that was smart for him to do that, to come to Jesus. You know, Some people come to places for their spiritual stuff that's strange. But he came to Jesus, and he knew the right question to ask. Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question, folks. Jesus gives him a few of the rules, not all of them, but he knew what basic ones to give to the guy. And listen to what this guy says. I, I'm going to put it in my words. Yeah, I know those rules. In fact, I have kept them all since my youth. Wow, this guy was holy. And he had one other thing going for him. He was rich. My kind of man. Love to have him on my board. <laughs> Holy and rich. Yeah. And here's what a, some, a strange thing that the Bible says that we don't pay attention to. It says, and Jesus loved him. Wow. And he says to him, hey, I, 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 let me put it the way. I, 
I want you to be perfect. And the way to be perfect, I tell you what to do. Why don't you just go sell everything you've got, give the money to the poor, and come follow me? But he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Now, if I were Jesus, I'd have said, as he walked away, wait, 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 let's negotiate this. How about we start with like 25%, you know? If I were one of the apostles, I said, I would have thought, why didn't he tell him to sell it and give the money to the Apostolic Evangelistic Association? Help keep us on the air, you know? But none of those things happened to this man who had everything together in his life except one thing that he wanted to have happen, perfection. And Jesus told him how. And he chose to leave. And Jesus let him go. Because he respected his ability to choose. Think of that. Mm. And so God creates them and puts his image in them, which is the ability to choose. And so he has to put two trees in the garden so they'd have a choice. And as you well know, they fully blew it. Now, at this point, something really sad happened, you know. One of the beautiful things of being in that garden is Adam and God walk together every evening in the cool of the day, which makes me wonder whether it was in Alabama or not. You know, or my, where I live, the cool of the evening is 90 degrees, you know. But there was something about it. God says, let's get together when this is comfortable for you. And they walked together in the cool of the evening. And I think God enjoyed this. You see, we discover that God made, in Hebrews, that God made Jesus a little lower than the angels, that he might taste death for man. Which means then that Adam was made just a little lower than the angels. So it wasn't like Adam was this dumb animal walking around. God had already endowed him. And I think he enjoyed walking with him in the evening. Hey, this is great. Adam was even learning more things as he walked with God, I'm convinced. And then after he disobeyed... and. and Here's another thing to notice. Adam didn't have a whole bunch of rules. Have you noticed that? He only had one rule. You know, some people get upset that we have a whole Bible. You expect me to read this whole thing? Man, it's got over a thousand pages. It's got a bunch of do's and don'ts. and It's got a lot of begats. And I don't like to read those unless I'm begatting. But only one rule. Just don't eat of this tree. Adam couldn't claim, I forgot. He had a perfect memory. Nothing cluttered up his memory like ours, you know. It wasn't like, well, I was getting phone calls and I just, I mean, everything was going so busy, I just forgot. I don't know if any of you men, your wife calls you and says, on the way home, will you stop and, and get certain groceries? My wife sometimes will do that to me. And I get in a grocery store and I don't remember what I was supposed to pick up. And I'm glad for cell phones because I can call and she can tell me, you know. And I'm thinking, that was stupid of me to forget that. But I do. But if you only got one thing <laughs> to remember at all is don't eat of this tree. Adam couldn't claim I forgot. So disobedience and death and sin came by our choice. Along with it came shame 
and fear. Now, I'm going to sort of give away a belief that I have, and I know that many, even in the church, do not agree with me. But I have some pastor friends who uh, who pack heat in the pulpit even. I'm not talking about the warmth of the scripture. <laughs> I'm talking about guns, you know, and when they inform me before service, by the way, I'm armed, you know, and I'm thinking, I didn't know I was that dangerous. <laughs> you know? And then I say, well, tell me why. And when they recount it, it is because they are afraid. It's always that. It's a result of fear. And God is not the author of fear. He doesn't want us to be afraid because fear has torment. And that's not his stick, folks. Grace is his. But I might get shot by someone else. You probably will anyway. Whether you have a gun or not, I mean, you're not going to stop them. They'll get to you first. But you're afraid, you know. And they hadn't even thought of that. I don't... Uh, I don't have a gun at my house. And it's partly because I'm not always a likable person. And I don't want my wife to have be tempted. And if I did have a gun, she would never know where it is. You know. But anyway, now they're ashamed. Before they had been naked and unashamed. And who were they naked before? Just each other and God. But now guilt has entered, you see, and guilt, what was the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They hid. They hid. It is our nature to hide now. We hide from each other. Such symbolism in the scripture as Moses putting a veil over his face to keep the Israelites to, from gazing at his face while the radiance was fading away. And, and, and we today, you know, uh, if, when you love someone, you tell them your secrets. The more you love them, the more of your secrets you tell them. But you never tell them everything. Why? You're not sure they can handle all the truth about me. Hmm. Now, don't go home and ask each other, all right, what are you hiding from me? If you do that, may lightning strike you. I'll put another tornado around here. No, only in Christ are, are we able. When we meet him, we find the one person to whom we can be totally honest. And it's important that we do that. Only in him is the veil taken away. But now they hide. They are clothed with fig leaves. Now... I have a fig tree at my house. I like figs. In fact, while we're on this trip, uh, our figs are, are coming into production, and I've authorized a few people to come and get all they want, and they'll be gone when we get home. But when I harvest them, I always have to put on a long sleeve shirt. Why? Because fig leaves really make you itch. Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. I can see it. Whoa. Oh. They knew they should suffer. And I can see God comes along and goes, Ooh. <laughs> it's not what I had in mind, guys. Let me fix you some lambskin seat covers. That's a lot more. Well, 
God asked them, who told you you were naked? They said, we were naked and afraid and ashamed. Who told you that? Well, in their guilt. You've heard of a guy named uh, Freud, who really did some creative and brilliant examination of humanity in, back in the 1800s and as a result developed psychiatry, a certain form of it at any rate. Uh, and his conclusion was that the main problem of humanity is the feeling of guilt. And so he developed psychiatry as a means of taking that feeling away from us. The problem is it didn't work. You know, all of these things you see where somebody's laying on a couch and the psychiatrist is back there taking notes while he sort of runs free. They don't do that. They haven't done that in decades because it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because we're guilty. (laughs) It's not a feeling. We're guilty. And proof of that is whenever you see a policeman and you may be driving at 50 under and the speed limit is 55, so you're safe. But what do you do? You slow down. Why? Guilt. You know that you owe him one, or maybe ten. And he might know about it, and if he sees you, <laughs> he's writing you up. I mean, guilt, we just walk in guilt. This is the beauty of the gospel, you know, that there is therefore now no guilt or condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's only in him that it's taken away. It can't be taken away from you on a psychiatrist's couch. He may be able to help you in some ways, but not in really redemptive ways. Only Jesus can do that. And now, having said some ways, I'm still trying to think of some ways that he might really be able to when Jesus really does do his job with us. Well, I've got to rush along here. Now they're kicked out of the garden. Tree of life is taken away. And and, and I'm glad about that because when I think about... What would it be like to be 150 years old and still alive, you know? And we say we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I can hear it. I know there's some happiness around here somewhere. If I could just get up some speed, you know. But we we don't want to live forever when when our bodies have wasted away. And so he took that tree away. But he brought it back. And you find it in the New Testament. And I think that tree might have been kind of like this. And Jesus says, you know, when you eat of me, you'll live forever. He was the fruit of the tree. Amazing. But now they're kicked out of the garden. Oh, boy. And now it's a gate there. The garden's a gated community now. And he puts two angels there to guard it with flaming swords. There's all kinds of stuff that one could think about. Why flaming swords? But I won't right now. Except to say, now they are kicked out. Man, the ground that had been their friend is their enemy, and it grows thorns and broccoli. (laughs) And they have to fight with it. I really don't think it was the sweat of their brow that there was the thing that, that... bothered them the most you see I don't think they went very far from the garden I think they were pretty close I think every evening 
you know, Adam comes back from the field and they go over to see if those angels are still there. Come on, Eve. I know you've got to anyway. We may as well go over there to see whether those guys were on vacation or taking a break or something. I believe the thing that was the biggest bother to them wasn't the sweat, but the memories. All their memories were filled with with, with the Garden of Eden. Oh, we belong in there, not out here. I, I, one reason I think that is because it still exists in us. You ladies all dream of having a, a mansion, self-cleaning, 50 miles from the nearest neighbor, but across the street from Walmart. You know? Life is supposed to be better. And we all work for a better life. I think it's the memories of Eden still in us. But all that had begun in that also finds fruit in their children. Mm. You know the story of Cain and Abel. And they brought their sacrifices to God. They seem to know they should do that. And I want to say two things about this that will be probably different from what you heard. But then I have fun with this. It doesn't violate the Scripture. God rejected uh, Cain's sacrifice, accepted Abel's. Abel had brought the first fruit of his flock. Cain was a farmer. He brought grain, some. And God rejected his. Typically, I hear, well, because... Uh, he should have had an animal sacrifice like like uh, Abel. However, later God accepted grain offering, see. So I, I can't really take that position. So what was it about, about uh, Cain's that might have been different? Well, one of the old translations of this where God says to Cain, sin is waiting at the door for you. Because it, it, this one, old one, says, old one says, you have not rightly divided. Maybe Cain shorted God. Maybe he had not brought an adequate amount to say, this is truly a sacrifice, you see. And so this was the beginning of being stingy with God, you know. Later on in Malachi, God says, it's like you bring roadkill for me. To sacrifice. Those are not the words he used. But it was that same similar kind of thought. And maybe that's what Cain was doing. He was sort of, sort of saying, you know, you're not that important to me, God, anyway. And so you haven't rightly divided. And, and he could have at that moment, see, made his sacrifice adequate. It wasn't a case of being the wrong thing he could have said, you know, I did. I gave you much less than I should have from what I've prospered from. And maybe that's where he failed. But one other thing that began, and, and maybe shorting God began back then, still goes on. Cain kills his brother, and of course God's the one who brought about the uh, prosecution of Cain. 
And he sends him away and he says, you're going to be an outcast everywhere you go. You're not going to be prosperous. It's always going to be the worst kind of struggle for you, man. But that didn't seem to bother Cain. You know what bothered him? He said, you got to help me because everyone will see my guilt and kill me. What do you have? Words written across him. I killed my brother. Please beat me up or do something. Or did it hover over him, you know, like Mr. Biffspook in the little Abner? You don't remember little Abner, do you, comic strip? Most of you don't. That's unfair. It's a brilliant comic strip who had this thunder and lightning always right over his head. Everything went wrong. He couldn't even pronounce his name. We have a Calvary pastor like that who who's, has a three-letter three last name with no vowel in it. And every time I see him, I'd say, can I buy a vowel to help you out? But what's going on with Cain? Here's my theory. In the infancy of mankind, what was in him, and there's the evidence of that, as you know, we were ashamed and so on. Maybe in the infancy of mankind, what was in him could not be separated from the look on his face. So the mark that God put on him might have been a lobotomy where he separated what his feelings were to what his face said. And ever since then, we have to have jury trials. How could that innocent-looking person have done this dastardly thing, you know? And so we have to hire lawyers to prove one thing or the other. And so he could go to any country and no one would look at his face and think, you're guilty. And it's all part of being hidden. All the ways that we hide. And hiding is so important to us that we have a thing called a Fifth Amendment that makes it absolutely constitutional for us to hide. Have you ever thought about that? Now, let me wrap all of this up with the nature of Jesus. Jesus was the one truly others-centered person. And when he comes along, he, be, he is the second Adam who really lived it out and showed us the true heart of God who in Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so other-centeredness, God built the garden, created them out of his other-centeredness and then arranged for their redemption because God so loved the world, at least most of it according to certain theologies, but no, he loved the whole world. Jesus was the one truly other-centered person. And I've discovered that when I am blessing or treating others right or serving them, I'm not sinning. It's the only way I know to live a sinless life is by serving other people. Simple as that. By being other-centered. When I begin to think about myself, which Jesus didn't seem to do, Oh, yeah, he took time to rest, but that was only so he could serve people better. Oh. But when I begin to think about myself, you know, I eat of the wrong tree. That's when I sin. And this whole failure that we now suffer under was the result of self-centeredness. I 
And so now we follow the one truly other-centered one and what a glorious change it makes in our lives. Now we know. So, have I covered enough territory this morning? Uh, I hope you can get over this. You can, you've got, you know, years to redeem this meeting. Uh, I keep coming here trying to wear out my welcome, and you just seem to not let me do it. But uh, maybe today I did, you know. Came pretty close, didn't I? Okay. All right. Well, thank you. God bless you. I think you're supposed to... Uh, Usually, though, they don't come up to sing until I say, let us pray. But I have a tendency to just quit. The let us pray thing is a tradition. We got all kinds of traditions, you know. And the more traditions you start, people say, why didn't you pray at the end? Well, where did the Bible say? I didn't hear that, you know. Uh, but we build these traditions. But the problem is the poor worship people don't know what to do unless I say, let us pray. You know, that's kind of Pavlovian. I've... <laughs> I, I enjoy doing it, and I didn't mean that to, to mess you guys up, but uh, I've had them in some churches. They hide away back in some room during the message, and they don't hear me say, let us pray. And I, I walk down, and, and they don't know what to do. They start thinking, where'd he go? Is it over? And they come out looking confused, <laughs> you know, as if they had heard the sermon. 